Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always it's a pleasure to have you join me on the show today. We're making giant strides forward in this series now and these next two weeks we'll be looking at one of the current buzzword property strategies in rent to rent. Rent to rent is considered to be a creative property strategy. As similarly to lease options we can get to control an asset that we do not own and make a profit from it. And this is because we do not have to take any finance out on the, prop, on the purchase of the property directly. My guest this week is the lovely lady by the name of Kemi Egan. And Kemi has a remarkable story really of how she got involved in property from a pretty dire starting position it has to be said. She was too poor to declare herself bankrupt after a business failure and had even become homeless as you will hear her share. However, by adopting the rent-to-rent strategy in particular, she started to turn her fortunes around. And she's now a successful property business person and a millionaire to boot. So it's very much a pursuit of happiness story in real life, just as Chris Gardner from the book and the film of the same name, in fact. But you'll also hear Kemi is very, very much a real person who is herself and uh, solves problems for homeowners in an ethical way. Let's have a listen to our discussion now then. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Well, I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined by the delightful Kemi Egan today on the show. And um, Kemi, we, we go back a, a, a way now, it seems, and you, you reciprocated and invited me onto your podcast a little while ago. So thank you for that, first of all. Um, hello and welcome to the show, to the Property Voice podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always great to catch up. And we had a lot of fun last time, so I've been excited for this one. We did. We did have a lot of fun. We think we digressed quite a lot, so uh, um, <laughs> might, it, might, it might be par for the course with us. But um, you probably know, uh, we uh, just to sort of set the scene a little bit for everyone, we're, we're in the middle of a series at the moment looking at uh, financing and property, but especially creative financing techniques. And um, I've always been, you know, impressed actually with uh, how you started, and we'll get into that in a second, how you started and, and how you've gone on in property and particularly on your focus in using uh, creative financing techniques. If I can just broadly describe as using other people's money or, uh, you know, not using so much of your own money and not using tra- traditional mainstream lenders like buy-to-let mortgage providers, that sort of thing. So, um, so that's the context, if you like, where we're at. And we're talking to a number of people who are what I call subject matter experts in their field. And you're certainly one of them. Um, and, you know, if I could label you as rent to rent, I know you've got a much broader remit than rent to rent. And um, perhaps you can share a little bit about that as well. But um, would it be great to, to start off by just telling us a little bit about you? You give us an intro, a bit of background, if you like, and, and particularly at rent to rent. And just, you know, I, I'm really keen to hear a little bit about your story as well, if that's okay. Of course, and thank you for that warm intro. Uh, it does really good for my ego, so thanks for that. <laughs> hey, welcome. But yeah, if anyone uh, hasn't heard about me before, and that's quite likely, I'm Kemi, and I started investing, must have been about eight years ago or so now. And essentially, 
I did the, the right thing, I say in, in air quotations. I went to uni, I got my degree, I got my master's degree, and everything was seemingly great. I opened a healthcare clinic because that's what I wanted to do to help people, and I it was basically the only thing I'd ever been any good at. So I opened this healthcare clinic, and if anyone's ever opened a brick-and-mortar type business, you know that they just sap cash out of you. And I spent thousands and thousands of pounds on with, you know, director's loans and credit cards and guarantees and all sorts of things setting up this practice that I was hugely proud of. It was the best thing I'd ever done and I was just ecstatic. And it went really well, to be honest, really quickly. I was earning six figures. We had a great business and everything was going fantastically. But the flip side to me being great at what I did, I was a physio, was that I knew nothing about business. And about 85 to 95% of my business roughly came from insurance referrals. So if you had an accident at work or if you had a car accident, you were sent to me to make you better and I build the insurance company, which is fine until you those insurance companies don't pay you for somewhere between three and, and nine months. So you do all of this work for three, six, nine months and then finally they pay you. Once you've got over the first kind of hump and you've cash flowed your way to start with, these obviously become regular, so it's less difficult. But what happened is, when you may have noticed that a small thing called the worldwide economic crash happened, <laughs> a lot of these insurance companies went bankrupt. Overnight, they went into administration, they disappeared, so all of the money that they owed me for the last nine months' work vanished. Um. And 90% of my clients and my caseload went overnight as well. Wow. If, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the word for it. In hindsight, I would have diversified my business, and the fact that I had 90% of my income coming from one place would have concerned me. But hindsight's a wonderful thing. So very quickly, things got ugly, as you can imagine. You know, I still had all these set-up loans to pay back. I still had all these bills going out, and I had just nothing coming in. So I started off doing what we all do, just selling anything and everything I had. My car, books, CDs, clothes, shoes, carpets, just the, anything and everything. But it, it wasn't touching the, the debts. It wasn't kind of enough at all. It wasn't even enough for me to live on, never mind keep on top of all the extra bills. So I was faced with a decision. And the crazy thing I then learned was that you actually have to pay to go bankrupt. So I was losing money, hand over fist, it was just pouring out of everywhere, and my first gut was to go bankrupt because that's all I knew, but I didn't even have the cash to go bankrupt. Sure. So I gave up my home and moved into the practice. I was sleeping on a blow-up bed in the back room of this office. It's like a 60 or 70 square foot room, there were no windows, and I had to sneak across the road to the community centre to to shower and you know the only thing I could cook was what was ever I could make in a microwave in the in the office so it all got a bit ugly <laughs> yeah the great thing about that was that it was a turning point in my life and you often find I'm sure you do rich when you're working with your clients and talk to people in general that something happens to make them look at different income streams or look at property and after a few months of crying into my wine and deciding that the world was unfair and why me, it occurred to me that actually 
people were still making money in this time. You know, there was the recession, and yes, all of these things felt like they were out of my control, but there had to be a way, there had to be something. So I started Googling, and I'm really fortunate that the things that came up when I Googled how to make money fast were in and around property. And the stats that we all know about people in the Sunday Times rich list either making their wealth or holding their wealth in property, how you could use different strategies to make money when you didn't have any, which obviously for me was crucial at the time, and a whole different things that I'd never even heard of came up. And that was the first time my eyes were really open to property. I started Googling and I found all of these things out and I did what I tend to do. I'm a bit of a nerd. I love reading. I love studying. So I, I read everything I could get my hands on. There was a library not far away and I started reading books on wealth creation, on self-development, on property investing, read autobiographies for successful people and just started absorbing all of these things that for some reason we don't feel as important to teach in schools. And within I made kind of the decision right there that my life was going to change and like I wasn't going to stand for this anymore. And actually, within 12 months of making that decision, everything was different. I was making more money than I made in my actual business. I had a multi-million pound property portfolio. I'd raised other people's money to do it, maybe a million pounds to, to buy it. And my life was transformed. And I'm really fortunate now that we fast forward. I am the founder of a couple of companies. We've got Freedom Investment, which is our hands-free uh, investing side and our, our property side, if you will. We have Freedom Academies, which is the training side where I get to share everything that I'm so passionate about, as you can probably tell. Yeah. And I have a lot of fun. <laughs> you do. And, and we swapped notes and stayed in touch, obviously, which won't be necessarily apparent to everyone listening to this now. And, I, you know, we're, we're normally a, a lot chattier, but to be honest, with your story, I just wanted you to, to kind of bear that out sorry to make you bear your soul and maybe take you back to that place but <laughs> as i think what's really significant i mean i don't know if people just realize what you said but you were effectively homeless weren't you uh yeah you you saw you moved into your office and lived there and you know had to go and shower across the road so it's such a powerful um turnaround you mentioned turning point in life and um yours is such a powerful um story in its in its own right so i wanted people to understand that but people don't necessarily have to literally be homeless, homeless to have a turning point in life, do they? They, there could be other circumstances which uh, make them, you know, think. It could be just quite simple, like they've just run out of money from investing, um, you know, to have to have a, you know, traditional investing that is, to have a, a turning point in life. And that's what I wanted to get onto now is that when you started out, you didn't actually have a lot of money to invest yourself, did you? No, I barely had enough money to pay the rent on the office. <laughs> right. So I guess, you know, I've, I've framed you as being specialized, a specialist, if you like, in rent-to-rent -rent as a strategy. Was that certainly one of the first strategies that you, you employed at that time? It was, yeah. And the reason, I didn't know about rent-to-rent -rent at the time. I didn't know about these kind of fancy terms like creative finance and things. But what I knew was that I do what other people tell me to do. I'm a very A to Z person. If you show me success and tell me this is how you get there, I'll do it. I'm, I've got no interest in reinventing the wheel. And what I was reading was essentially about entrepreneurship. And it was, you know, taking things of low value to high value. And it was helping people that are struggling with something and making it better. And I remember meeting property owners, meeting uh, landlords that are tired and they were frustrated. And the 
the monthly rent was barely kind of making them any money. Just thinking, well, hang on a second, this would be great for a multi-let, or this would be great for, um, you know, now short-term accommodation. But I didn't have the cash to buy it, and although we had raised some joint venture finance and I'd had some cash, still it was very, very limited. And obviously I was being tested. I was new to this industry, so people weren't as confident in my abilities to deliver as they are now. So I wanted to take advantage of these opportunities while creating a win-win situation for people when I didn't have any cash. And what it made sense to do was to actually pitch this to owners and say, listen, I think you're missing a trick. You can do this, you can do that, you can convert the, this. Um, very little cash, you know, I'm prepared to do all the work and how about we both benefit from this? And the thing I think that's really special about rent to rent and creative stuff is that you get to be entirely creative. There are no boundaries, there are no walls, no one can tell you what you can and can't do. You have to go into it with a view of how can I help the homeowner? How can I create something that is appropriate, affordable, and great for the tenant? And then how do I benefit from that? Well, that's something I actually want to pick up on a bit later is the sort of benefits to all the parties. But let's just go back to sort of more the fundamentals, if you like. Um, rent to rent, What? how would you define it? What is it as far as you're concerned, at least? Okay. So I think it's one of the best strategies for providing value to the market because I mentioned quickly that you get to help everyone. But if we come back to that, it's essentially taking an asset that is pretty underutilized at the moment and maximizing the value you can get from it. So traditionally, if you have a look around at rent to rent and Google it, people will talk about taking maybe a three-bed house and changing that to a five-bedroom multi-let, so having five individuals rent their bedrooms and sharing the communal space, which is certainly one aspect. But you are essentially taking a rent or a lease from the property owner and then doing something creative with that property to increase the value it brings in. So you can pay the property owner and you make some money in the middle. Uh -huh. So the multi-let strategy is one. Another strategy is to take a property in a fairly popular area, maybe near a town or a tourist attraction, different things like that, a, a big factory, and take the lease from the property owner and then list it as short-term accommodation. So you know, booking.com, Airbnb, using these sites that are now out there to maximize the income sheet far more as for a short-term accommodation than you would for a long-term rental. And the great thing is we're now kind of entering the sharing economy. So a few years ago, all of this was a bit odd. No one had really heard of it. It didn't make sense. Everyone was a bit kind of cagey. Yeah. But now with Zipcar and Uber and Airbnb, kind of the hard work has been done for us. The marketing for it as an idea is done for us. All we have to do is go out there and show our professionalism and our ability to deliver and how we can actually add value to the homeowner. It's not a hard sell like it used to be. Yeah, I think you make the key point about adding value and also you doing the hard work, as it were. So um, a lot of homeowners, whether that's landlords or, or private um, homeowners, they, they, they don't really want another job. You know, So what you're bringing is you'll, you effectively take away that, uh, that work from them to create this value. And your margin in the middle is uh, you know, comparing, let's say, a mortgage payment or a standard rental payment compared to a higher level of income as a result of it being a multi-let or short-term let or something like that. But there's, you know, there's work to be done to, to make that margin, isn't there? Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes we'll have 
a landlord that will say to us, well, then why wouldn't I just do this myself? Mm. And my kind of go-to answer is, well, you are doing it yourself. Are you having a good time? And invariably <laughs> it's a no, that's why we've got in touch. So if then I make that that you've got three tenants in this property to manage and not one, do you think you're going to have three times as much fun? And you have to be really clear at the value you add. And oftentimes it's not just the income and it's not just that there are no fees, etc., but it's that you are taking the stress away and that's what they really value. Like you said, Rich, they don't want another job. For us, for me, I love property. They don't. So show them what you do to help them and help them see it from their side of things, as opposed to just, well, hang on, why are you making money from my house? Oh, should be. Yeah, and I guess there'll be some who will just say, I can do this myself, and they'll just go and do it. But there'll be others, and there's, um, there's some pain or hassle or you know some other inconvenience that they want to get rid of. Uh, maybe there's lots of voids. You know, Maybe they need to do a refurb. Who knows? But um, and you take away all that hassle, because often people make a decision um, emotionally and then justify it rationally, don't they? So... You know, you just you just actually take. They can't say, well, actually, I'm just like so. Fed. They sometimes do, but they say, I'm so fed up with this. Will you just take away this problem, and I'll be very, very happy. Um, but they usually say, oh, I know it's all about making money, or I don't want to. You know, they they justify it rationally. Let's put it that way. But get, getting to the nuts and bolts a bit more, um, just a rent to rent deal. How how would it work in practice? What are the sorts of parameters that you would tend to get involved in? And I know you're probably going to say it depends. But, you know, typically, what, what sort of things do you do? Uh, how do you construct a rent-to-rent -rent deal, generally speaking? Okay. So the first thing I'm going to look at is if I'm – so we'll take a, a traditional rent-to-rent -rent deal. So I'm going to take a lease, a house that a property owner has been renting as a single-family let, and I'm going to let it as a multi-let. The first thing I'm going to look at is where – my profit comes from because I don't do the property owner or the tenants any service or any value if I come up with a deal and it all gets agreed and then three months down the line I figure out that it makes no money and I can't pay it. So when I'm figuring that out I will agree to pay the property owner an amount of money. There will be no maintenance, no management fees and essentially they have no responsibility for that property. So I have to build those fees into a figure. So let's say, I don't know, the, the rent is £700 per month as a single let. That's what they've been achieving at the moment. We add in 10% uh, maintenance and let's say 10% voids. It shouldn't be anywhere near that, but worst case scenario. So you're about, about £840. You're then going to have Say you're going to have that as five tenants, you've got to add in some council tax, some bills, some Wi-Fi, because you know, no one can live without Wi-Fi anymore. Yeah. And let's say that 840 gets us up to, plus all of that, gets us up to, I don't know, £1,500. I'm all putting these figures from, my, from the top of my head. Yeah. The difference between that 1500 and the gross rent that the five-room rental should bring in needs to be a minimum really of one and a half to two rooms clear profit. So put another way, each of those rooms has to rent for what about five hundred pounds? Gets us to two and a half grand. So yeah, one and a half rooms gets us about seven fifty, which would give us seventeen hundred and fifty is what we can afford to spend. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, it makes sense. What I actually like about that is that you're almost you're converting it into how many rooms give you profit as well. <laughs> yeah, so, and that's a really clear way to to do it. So one and a half should be your minimum, and two plus is fantastic. But what I the the point with rent to rent is that you are putting in a little amount of money, if any at all, and you're meant to make money from it quite quickly. So I always get really stressed when I hear about people that will put in 10 grand plus, you know, especially in London, it's quite easy to do, and then they're only making a couple of hundred quid a month. You've lost the point and the value of the strategy. So you want to make any investment back in ideally nine-ish months. Certainly within a year. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And, and what about costs to get involved in, in the deal? What, what sort of things might people have to think about? Will they have to pay a deposit to the landlord or owner? For example, occasionally they might do. I think that often depends on how well you position yourself as an expert and knowledge. We rarely, rarely pay uh, a deposit unless there's a really good reason for us wanting that. You can take insurances out, and they are really great for negating those kind of costs. So the landlord might say, "Well, I want a deposit." Well, actually, what if I take out a rent guarantee insurance for you? You know, that might cost me. 30 or 40 quid a month or something like that but that is essentially your deposit covered are you happy with that generally they are all they want to know is that they've got some kind of buffer some kind of guarantee there so you've taken down what might be a deposit of one month one and a half months so 700 to a grand using our previous example down to you know 40 quid a month or something which dramatically lowers your entry costs that's a good idea mm. sorry oh it's brilliant isn't it no I love insurances we have insurances for kind of boiler repairs as well mm -hmm. and often cases we get the landlord to pay for that and it's like 15 quid a month and that covers the boilers and the plumbing and all of that so you don't get any horrible surprises with that the other thing I should say is when I say we'll cover the maintenance mm. we will cover usually anything that's not structural so windows walls roofs is their problem um, and kind of things like general wear and tear type things so you know if the shower needs replacing that still belongs to the landlord but you know the door handle comes off we'll cover that the tap leaks we'll cover that so all the day-to-day -day things I don't have to worry about but if something breaks that would generally add value to the house or forms the structure of that house they still take care of and they're so, entirely happy with that that's standard anyway yes and what about uh, when you go in at the front end? Is uh, what about conversion costs or refurbs? You know, if the property is not quite up to scratch for what you're you're intending to use it for. Yeah. So generally, now I'm quite happy to pay for a light refurb. It kind of seals the deal in a lot of cases. You say to the landlord, "You know what? Not only we're we going to do this, but I'm going to paint the house from top to bottom and maybe replace some of the flooring." When I first got into it, I didn't have the cash to do that, so they had to cover that cost, and that probably lost us some deals no. so you have to look at that from your own financial perspective on what you can do but sometimes what we'll do is say listen you know you need some some walls you need some fire doors that does add value to your house in reality if you wanted to you could go for a commercial mortgage or you could have your house revalued based on what we're doing so really that should be your cost and if they say I can't afford it and you 
feel that's genuine and again you're able and happy to you might pay for that upfront but take it out with their monthly payments over the next 12 to 18 months and again they're quite happy with that because they just don't want to pay upfront you know no one likes putting their hand in their pocket they're no different if actually they don't have to but they're getting the security of a job well done and just a slightly lower income for a while they're fine with that that sounds like a good ploy. And um, the what about things like, obviously, if you're doing a short-term letter in particular, and HMOs uh, similarly, you're going to have some uh, cost to kit out the place as well, aren't you? Yeah, for sure. So staging is crucial, and that will enormously affect the amount of value you can charge per night, the, the cost per night for the accommodation. And there are lots of ways that you can help amend that. Again, talk to the landlords. Ask them if they're prepared to put in. If it doesn't have white goods in, are they happy to do that? And perhaps you, in turn, the rent you'll pay them slightly. So if they'll put in a nice fridge, a washing machine, a tumble dryer, and whatever other the big bits are, well, maybe you'll pay them an extra 30 quid a month over the next five years that you have the contract. So and actually, you know, they quickly do the sums in their head. That's made them an extra three grand. They're happy. Yes. You mentioned the contract length there, actually. I meant to ask you that. So, um, obviously, if you're talking about things like looking to break even in round about nine months type of thing, um, how long typically would you want to enter into an agreement with the, uh, with the owner? Ideally, we go for about seven years. I think the minimum we'll do is usually between four and five because yeah. you've got to make it – you have a couple of things to bear in mind. Firstly, the security of the tenure for the tenant. So you can't have a really short-term contract and take a, an AST for a tenant knowing that actually you might not have the house in 18 months. Mm -hmm. It's fairly disingenuous and unethical. So you need to make sure you've got a, a set period of time. If you're getting your costs back in nine months, in reality, you want to make four or five times what you've put in. So you want three to four years to make some money back and actually make that a worthwhile investment of your time. And in my experience, the landlords, they get a little bit twitchy at seven. It's, it's really funny. I'm not quite sure why. Hmm. But at four to five, they're quite happy. So you might do a five-year lease with a three-year extension, assuming everyone has fulfilled their obligations. Yeah. And I, I don't really know what the difference is between five and seven years. There's obviously something psychological in that. They feel that that's too long. It's seven-year um, rich, Kemi, I think, probably. <laughs> could be, could be the seven-year rich, yeah. <laughs> Don't, just made that up, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, whatever that is, and, you know, a great way to get around any question they have is ask them the magic question, which is, what would you like to happen? You know, yeah. they'll come up with all kinds of objections that haven't even crossed your mind to start with. And you're like, is that even a thing? <laughs> so my answer is always, well, what would you like to happen? You know, they say, well, what if you disappear off the face of the earth? Okay, valid point. What would you like to happen? And as long as it's reasonable and it makes sense, put it into the contract. Yeah. Um, Had someone say, you know, what if your company goes under? Okay, what would you like to happen? And it was something along the lines of, um, at, at the first, they want to put in the contract at the first awareness that you have that you're no longer liquid you hand the property back and you have to give notice okay fine put that in that's reasonable but just ask these landlords what they would like to happen sometimes they won't even know they're just throwing it out there to see what you say and if you go back with a constructive answer they're happy sometimes they do have something in mind and like i said as long as it makes sense it actually solves the problem that they think they've raised 
and you don't feel it's unreasonable, put it in there. Some really valuable things you mentioned there that I haven't really. It's a, such a powerful convers, uh, point to say in a conversation, isn't it? What would you like to see happen? Because uh, you, what you're doing, and the whole point of creative financing strategies is you're providing solutions. Well, you can't solve what you don't know is a problem, can you? So, and and equally, you you might suggest something which just misses the mark as far as the other person's concerned. So. I think that's such a powerful, I think that's one of the sentences I've just written down. Definitely we'll use much more. What would you like to see happen? Very good. And the really incredible thing with it is that we have secured deals paying less than other people have offered because we are prepared to do that, to have the conversation, to ask what would you like to happen, to say how can we make this work for you to actually solve the problem. You know, the, the fantastic thing about creative financing strategies and the thing that I think is a challenge with them is that you can get into it with no money. So occasionally you'll see people out there that just want to make some cash, they want to make a quick buck and they're not interested in providing value, which does the whole industry a disservice. But if you're the person that goes in and you're educated and you know what you want to do, and more importantly you actually want to help and you want to solve the problem, you'll stand out a mile. Yeah. And I think conversely, the other thing I've heard a lot of people doing is signing up to say a one-year contract and then really spec speculating that, you know, if all goes well, it will be extended, that kind of thing. And I just keep thinking to myself, that's not a sustainable business model. Um, so uh, I'm glad you said you aim for, a, you know, a good chunk of time, really, because you need that. And, and as you also say, it's an ethical position to adopt as well for the tenants who uh, are going to live there. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that as well. You know, for everyone listening, please don't speculate. If it doesn't make sense on paper, it will not make sense in real life. And don't try and go, well, if I can just nick 10 quid here and if I can just shave off 10 quid there, if the deal is that tight, it doesn't work. Don't do yourself the stress and the pressure of having something that just doesn't do the job. You know, it's there to make you money. Mm. So if it doesn't work, then either... Offer them the best you can. Try and be a bit creative. Instead of doing a multi-let, will a short-term let work? Will that get you where you need to be? Or walk away. But just don't, for your own sake, as well as the landlords and the tenants, don't agree to something that you can see on paper isn't working. Don't gamble. Don't speculate. It will burn you in the end. Totally agree. Very sound advice. Um, just, just what we're talking about, creative financing generally, uh, and I, I don't want to pigeonhole you totally as a, as a rent-to-rent, uh, you know, just solely rent-to-rent. -rent. What are the sort of creative financing strategies or themes do you get involved with? And indeed, do any of them spring out of your conversations around rent-to-rent, -rent, for example? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing that we do, um, that I think you do as well, Richard, is when we are sourcing for leads, when we're going out and we're doing our marketing, we're trying to attract deals, I rarely am specific about the type of thing I will offer. So we might send out a mailing about, you know, we're, we're looking for properties in your area. Do you have anything available? We might put out that we want to rent something in the area. We have all different types of, of marketing strategies. And actually, when the lead comes in, the first thing we'll say is, what, what would you like? What's your ideal goal? So I'm here at the end of the phone. You're sat there, you've got this house that's set empty, what do you want to happen to it? And then we'll fit the strategy to as closely as we can to what they want. A lot of the times they they do want shot of it, 
but you know this is still a business for us so we'll pay a bit less than market value maybe they're not ready to do that so we'll tie in a rent to rent with a purchase option so they have guaranteed rent in the meantime they don't have the stress but in a couple of years we'll buy it from them at the price they want and they're really happy um, sometimes someone is halfway through a refurb and actually they've overspent or they thought they'd get a mortgage and they won't so we'll come in and we'll slightly tweak the refurb to maybe make it a multi-let when we think it is at the value that it, it needs to be to get that money back we'll do an assisted sale with them or well, that will be the contract we set up in the first place so you know we're going to multi-let this for 18 months when we think the market has done what we need it to do or whatever has happened then we can sell it and we'll give you back the investment you made into refurbing that house but it comes back to the things we we're talking about before about actually adding value and solving problems and looking at everything as a standalone you know to start with you might not want to have all of these strategies because it's a lot to have in your head and you you want to know your thing really well before you add three or four or five more strategies to it but if you can have an overall knowledge of them or an awareness at least you can at least sell that deal on so listen we've got someone here that that wants an assisted sale or you know this house needs 10k spending on it and actually there's a there's a good chunk of change in this sell that deal on make yourself some money put it back into marketing to find the deals you want very good so as i say it's all about solving problems so it's interesting what you say about general marketing not saying you know not necessarily highly targeted it's you're basically just looking for people to reach out and say, well, I might have a problem with my property. Can you fix it for me? Or what's that effect? So well, that was really interesting. Um, specifically with rent-to-rent, though, see, when you started out um, a few years ago, you talked about it being a recession at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, rent-to-rent um, um, you know, resonated perhaps for a number of different reasons back then. Do you think it's still relevant today? And is it, is it a viable and um, sort of sustainable strategy going forward? I really do. And I think especially at the moment with the tax changes and the uncertainty we've got in the market it provides an even greater opportunity for it because we as humans we love certainty we like knowing what's coming in we like knowing what's going out we like knowing what's happening and we definitely don't like when things are up in the air so at the moment when you've got amateur landlords people that maybe own kind of one or two or bought one, moved out of it, so now they're left with this house. They're reading the headlines that says property prices are going to plummet, um, rents are going up or down, taxes are coming in. What they want is someone to say to them, listen, for the next four years, I will give you this each and every month. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to worry about it. And that just gives them that level of certainty so that they can plan and they can manage their life and, and do whatever they need to do. Now that said, you know, in, in a way, as you were talking about, there was a recession and, and prices were lower, so it was a lot easier to tie in options. Now, unless you're doing marketing in certain parts of the country, obviously the southeast London, you know, the prices are flying up at the moment. Most people don't want to do that because they don't need to. So look at your area, consider what value you can add. So in the southeast short-term rentals are huge people are renting out their homes their flats their whatever for short term and that's where you get to add value so again it comes back to looking at the marketplace 
and seeing which problems you can solve. At the moment, the big problems we're solving are certainty. We're giving people certainty. In some cases, we're seeing landlords that have kind of read about this Airbnb thing and they're interested, but they don't want to be ripped off and they've had all of these kind of things going on to actually JVing with them. And rather than having a fixed rent, we're saying, listen, we'll we'll do this, we'll fit it into our into our business, and then we'll take a cut of the profits. They love it because we've got vested interest in maximizing how much money comes out of that property. They love it because they're getting more than they were before. So you, so you get to Yeah. Sorry, carry, carry on. That's what I say. So you get to again look at the market, look at the individual and figure out what they want and then give it to them. Yeah, and what I was going to say there is you've kind of got a couple of flavors just to the owner because you, you say certainty. So the whole uh, one of the original models, certainly with rent to rent, that was certainly pushed out on the circuit was, you know, you pay a fixed rental to the owner of the property, whether that's a landlord or a private o owner. Uh, and so they get that certainty with that fixed rent payment. That's the sort of win for them. But I think as you just just uh, added, you, this sort of JV model. So you're allowing them maybe to participate in some of the upside of of what your of your value creation so there's um you know it's not just a, a fixed potentially lower guaranteed rent model that you're offering in that situation it could be more of a variations look let's let's be in this together you know you can participate in my heart in the profits of my hard work almost you know exactly and you'll see them kind of physically take almost a step back and they're like oh okay so you know you're not just trying to rip me off for everything i've got you're genuinely in this to make this work and you can stand their hands on heart look in the eye and say yeah let's do this together and like you say you can benefit on the upside and and see the benefit as we as we create it so clear as you were saying no sorry carry on carry on say, as you were saying before but when the market changes there are a few things that don't change and landlords okay when they are fed up, they are sick of it, they didn't get into this in the first place, it wasn't what they wanted, someone gave them the house, or you know, whatever happens, the market doesn't change that. The market doesn't change whether or not, you know, a lot of, we've actually just done a, an audit, and actually a lot of our leads come in from women that have been widowed, and statistically we know women outlive men, but their husbands or their partners have invested in property, and now they're left with this house, it's probably a little bit unloved, that needs a bit of bit of love and a bit of kind of painting and tidying up. They don't have the confidence to go out there and work with trades. They don't really want to, and they feel a bit bad selling this thing that they've been left. So it works really well for them. So while the market changes, the people and human nature doesn't. So I was going to ask you actually, where do you find these uh, types of property? You kind of hit on a couple um, of potential avenues there already. So um, as you mentioned, widows and uh, tired landlords could be some, you know, rich pickings, I suppose. Um, that's the right phrase for it. But <laughs> the what about other sort of areas? How do you go about finding deals? Yeah. So another one is properties that are already multi-lets that coming up to the summer holidays when they should all have been relet for the next season or the next semester are still on the market because that tells you that it's probably not in great condition excuse me or the landlord um, isn't being flexible in something there's something up with that property if it's not let and it should be let to students by now so that's um that's where we find a lot we find a lot from 
properties on the HMO register. So they have been converted, they are fully licensed, but you know, the license has come in as has other regulations and the landlord is just a bit. We find them in free newspapers, you know, you can still turn to the back of a page and see that there are houses for rent, which I think is hilarious and brilliant. Um, but there are people that are trying to avoid fees, whether that's because they're tied into an ugly mortgage and they've got really high interest rates and they need to maximise as much as they can, or actually they're just really acutely aware of value, but they're trying to avoid landlord um, letting agents' fees, so they'll market themselves individually there. Gumtree is obviously a huge one, but please, I beg of you, for everyone that's listening that's going to go on Gumtree, do not send the message. There's something like, hi, I'm whoever. There's two messages. Well, one is, if I offered you cash, what's the lowest you could take? And the second one is, would you be interested in me renting for, say, three to five years with an option to buy it at the end? Let me know. Because I'm not quite sure where these messages are coming from. I'm, I think maybe someone is telling people to do it. But anyone that puts their house up is getting 30 to 40 of these automated, not personalised, and they're not getting the attention. Pick up the phone and say, hi, I've just seen your, your property to rent. Is, it, is this now a good time to have a chat? Be a real person and you already stand out. Secondly, if there's no number on there, drop them a message, hey, it's Kemi, um, just seen your property to rent. Is there a good time for me to give you a call? And start the conversation, not these pigeonholed messages that don't really say anything other than I've got a plan I'm not going to tell you about. Yeah, so be be a human being even even. So strike yeah, start the world, be human. Yeah, start to build a relationship. Because this is the theme that's running through your answers actually, Kami, I'm kind of noting is that you are you're putting the other person at the at the center. You know, you're finding a solution to their problems. You're treating them as an individual. You're bespoking, tailoring. You're, you know, you're building a relationship to build trust. This is, if, if I'm right in picking those elements out, it sounds to me that's your approach. And it's a lot of valuable information that's coming out of this. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. And the, most, the first reason is because I, I was once told, actually, it's by a marketing guy, that something like 60% of deals are done after the fourth touch point. And I went back and I had a look, and that was kind of true in my business. But the only way you get to have four, five, six touch points, conversations, emails, whatever with someone, is when they like you and you can have a conversation. So if you're turning people off or they're immediately not liking you because you're you know, straight to the figures, then you're doing yourself out of potentially 60% of profit in your business. And the second thing is that as humans, we're all pretty selfish. We all think the world revolves around us and ours is the only problem out there. So when you're talking to the homeowner, they're thinking, the only thing that matters right now is me, my money, me. If you go and you turn up and you're thinking, the only thing that matters is me, my money, me, you're going to butt heads and it's not going to work. If you turn up and kind of agree with them and say, listen, you know, you're absolutely right, this is what we're going to talk about, you are the concern, suddenly they think, oh, oh, she really cares, he cares, oh, this is interesting, and they want to work with you. And it's a really cheap way, it doesn't cost you anything, of getting a whole ton more deals across the line. Yeah, I think, that, you know, you're making such um, relevant points. It's funny, actually, I got a Facebook um, invitation the other day to connect with somebody on Facebook, and 
I normally try and see if they're in a similar field to me before I just accept people, you know, as connections that I don't really know. And um, yeah. so I could see there was a property interest. So I thought, yes, let's connect, you know, do that. And then within a minute, I had an email in my inbox pitching me for some super duper type of opportunity. And I, to be honest, I normally just unfriend immediately when that happens. But in this case, I thought, I'm just going to write back and say, do you normally find this approach works for you as a marketing angle? <laughs> you know, connect someone on Facebook. A few minutes later, hit them up with some sort of investment proposition. And they just came back and said, no, not really. <laughs> I was like, well, there you go then. So, but to be honest, I, I love the honesty. Well, I did it. And to be honest, they're still friends now because I actually appreciated their honesty. <laughs> so, uh, but it, I'm not sure I'd be rushing out to uh, to engage with them so so hurriedly. <laughs> anyway, I do digress. You know, it's something that happens. But I've probably got a couple of questions I want to combine for you that I've had in mind. And one is, um, yeah. God, because you know we do we do digress the two of us. I know that. But um, the two things I kind of wanted to ask you is like advice for people who may be starting out with you know considering rent to rent as a strategy and also things to watch out for. You know, things to you know downside risks, scotches, that sort of thing. So. I don't know if it's fair to lump those two together, but perhaps if you can just give us a top top line view on that, that'd be great. Okay, so I'll go do the the risks and, and stuff first, of all, because there are risks, and a lot of the time people might think that they don't have any kind of liability, that nothing can come back on them because they don't own the house or whatever else, and that's entirely incorrect. So make sure that you are legally covered, make sure that you've got, you know, a legal agreement that covers the points, and the only thing really that causes discord in relationships, ambiguity in grey areas, so just bullet point everything, make sure it's out and clear, um, if it's the first time you're having a lawyer maybe draft an agreement for the first time, my top tip is have the heads of terms agreed already, and use a property experience lawyer, so, you know, send them a note, so this is what we've agreed, this is what we want in it, please create that and don't let them cause problems by going back and forth and, and interfering like some lawyers do. Hmm. Um, make sure you are covered legally, make sure you've got your appropriate insurances and you're registered with the property ombudsman and, and those kinds of things. They don't cost a lot and actually they make their money back by making you stand out from the crowd, from all the jokers that rock up with dirty shoes trying to just do a deal you turn up appropriately covered, being able to demonstrate all of that, you stand out from the crowd right away. Um, and I, the biggest thing, and I see it time and time again, is don't be optimistic. Do your numbers. If it doesn't work on paper, just don't do it. They're probably my top two or three kind of risks to prepare yourself for and repay your business for. And the second thing was, for people starting out, wasn't it? That's what yeah, you're... sorry. I, I kind of threw two at you at once. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So the first thing is your have a portfolio. And even if you haven't done a deal yet, even if you haven't done anything yet, you can still have a small kind of leather bound or whatever folder, essentially. And you can put in there either friends, case studies, JV partners, case studies, if you don't have any of those, maybe someone you're training with has some, or create some assessments. So you can go into the property owner or to the letting agent, whoever you're talking to, and say, listen, we've carried out some case study research on the area, and this is what we can achieve in your area. So you're really showing how professional you are, you're showing that you've done your research, and you're showing them what's happening, as opposed to just kind of wandering in off the street with an idea. 
as soon as it's in a folder, you already have a sense of, of authority and people will listen to you. Second thing is have an online presence. You know, have a website. I use and I love ClickFunnels because you can systemize so much from it and you can have a really professional website for, you know, for peanuts. But the best thing about um, websites and online presence is you have a decent email address. Um, I actually, I genuinely received an email from someone not that long ago, not to digress as well, but it was something like gonna be a billionaire at something.com. I, yeah, I struggled to take that one seriously when they were pitching me something as well. I think it was an investment opportunity. So a genuine professional email address. Be professional in your approach is another top tip. You know, you can be authentic, you can be real. Hopefully I sound real because I am. Uh, but that doesn't mean you get to be lazy and unprofessional. It doesn't mean you get to turn up looking scruffy and unprepared. You don't have to be necessarily in a top-to-bottom suit, but you do have to look appropriate and professional. You know, property is someone's biggest asset. They're going to trust you with it. You've got to look the part to a degree. Don't lie. People are going to see right through you. And just be ethical and honest in everything you do. And that might cost you a couple of deals. And it might take you... A couple of months longer to get to where you want to go but the reality is when you get there you will speed past the people that created their business on sand and it has now come crumbling down around their ears and I know when I started I remember looking at some people thinking how are they there already how are they there already and one by one they've gone out of business and um, while that's not you know I'm not particularly happy for them that I don't like to see that it, it reaffirms the importance of building a real business with foundations that's going to see you through the next few years and however far you want to take it. Well, do you know what? That's such a powerful and, you know, I totally resonate with everything you've just said in that like last summary about being real, authentic, but being professional and equally having strong values, being ethical and honest. And, you know, you know perhaps it might cost you short term. It's going to pay off long term because I'm all about sustainable uh, investing. And so it's, it's great to hear you say that. Um, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. I could actually carry on talking to you for ages, for hours, in fact, but probably need to keep the listeners in mind and, uh, and draw a line there. But um, perhaps, perhaps as a slight you know, conclusion, is there, is there anything that potentially you, you would like to make uh, available to listeners of the Property Voice, uh, Kemi, that you think they could value and, and, and appreciate in this context? Of course. And thank you for inviting me on again, Rich. I've had Sorry. a huge amount of fun. Thank you to all the listeners. I hope this has been valuable for you and there's you know, something in there that you can take away and implement. And just as a thank you to everyone, really, I've got my copy of my book, The Power of Real Estate Investing. I released it last year. It went to number one. And we've had something like 20,000 copies moved uh, worldwide, which has been a little bit incredible. But you can grab a free copy of that at www.kemi.gift, K-E-M-I.gift. Um, you can grab a completely free copy of that just as a, a huge thank you for your time and, and spending this time well that's that's great and I've read your book and it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very good read it's very compelling very powerful read and, you know some of your story and what you've gone through there and some you know some tips of how to grow a property business as well so um, very valuable book uh, look out for that the link is going to be in the show notes um, is there a good way to get hold of you Kemi as well I know you kind of almost were saying goodbye there but uh, just before we kind of wrap it is there, is there any way you would point people to if they want to find out a little bit more about you and reach out yeah, so I'm quite fortunate I've got an unusual name. So I'm all over kind of social media, Kemi Egan on Facebook, um, Kemi Egan on Twitter, sensing a theme there. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
we've got my, if you want to just drop me an email as well, kemi at freedomacademies.com, come straight to me, um, so no one else will see that, that comes to my email address. And then my two sides, if you want to have a nose around of what we're up to, we've got freedominvestment.co.uk and freedomacademies.com. So come over, say hi, uh, I'd love to hear from you. And I'm sure people will get a lot of value uh, talking to you, Kemi, because, you know, we certainly have on this episode and in other, other quarters as well. So I'm expecting a lot of people to reach out to you for that. But I just want to say thanks so much for, for all the valuable insights you've given on the show today. And um, I think if I could just take away one overriding theme, well, I think a couple, actually. One is to be authentic and be yourself, but equally put the other person at the center. That seems to be um, your approach, conscious or otherwise, I think. But, um, you know, salute, finding solutions and putting the other person's interests at the heart of everything you do. And um, you probably won't go too far wrong if you do that. Thanks, Kemi. I really appreciate you being on the show again today. And um, you never know, we'll try and get you back another time maybe. But uh, thanks again. Really, really enjoyed talking to you. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. And there was so much I could take away from this discussion with Kemi. The two big takeaways were, were more about approach, actually. Um, the first one was to be a real human being. And the second was to be an ethical problem solver. And this, of course, is all about relationships and values. And so that resonates with me quite a lot, as I'm sure you probably understand from, uh, from our previous discussions and, uh, and shared views. But aside from that, there were plenty of nuggets dotted throughout the discussion that I would even suggest you listen to it back again to, to capture them all. Rent to rent as a property strategy is where we get to control a property without owning it and by changing its use to create additional value and profit, such as by turning it into a multi-let or a short-term let. In addition, some additional tools in Kemi's problem-solving toolbox that she brings out, depending on the answer to her key question, what would you like to happen? Include rent to rent with a purchase option, an assisted sale, a delayed completion, or even a joint venture with the property owner. And this is why having a solution orientated approach is so essential, as different outcomes may result from an owner's stated wishes, which might be rent to rent, but might also be something different as well. And that's a trick with creative property strategies, really. Being creative and matching the right solution to the right problem. Of course, rent to rent is an active property strategy we are, where we are being rewarded for our time and our know-how, even if we, don't, if we don't have any money or a little bit of money to put into a deal. And this, of course, is why it has become a popular strategy for investors with no or little funds of their own to, to put, put into a deal. But as with uh, lease options, I, I mentioned there, just be aware of some of the downsides. We need to protect ourselves. We need to be fully compliant. We need to have the correct uh, permissions in place from all, all parties. So just, just note that. But don't forget that Kemi mentioned that you can get a free copy of her best-selling book, The Power of Real Estate Investing, which includes uh, an insight into her own personal story. The link is in the show notes, along with the other resources and contacts that she mentioned. But this is part one of my discussion about rent to rent. Next week, we drill further into the discussion and we see how we can combine strategies for maximum profit using a creative financing technique as we explore rent to rent using serviced accommodation in, in tandem. For now, though, let's leave the discussion there until next time out. But as always, you can email me personally if you want to talk about anything from today's show 
or more generally, of course, in property investing, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. And the show notes will be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net, of course. Other than that, I'd just like to say thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.